0: Hey, welcome to the Gentle Rebel Podcast. We're all about playing with ways to navigate life's harsher edges with a spirit of compassionate creativity. I'm Andy Morton, a sound artist, songwriter and slow coach, and I love helping highly sensitive people understand and engage with their natural internal rhythms and processes using creativity and play so they can make sustainable progress on meaningful pursuits without getting overwhelmed, shutting down or burning out. So in this week's episode, I want to talk about trust. Who can you trust? What is the truth? Um, These are questions that confront us in many areas of modern life. And in our September Courtyard Conversation, we talked about the importance of uh, trust during times and environments of uncertainty and change. Over the summer, I invited readers and listeners of the podcast to... Uh, answer some questions about our themes for the autumn so change belonging and serenity kind of wanted to to know more about what people are uh, dealing with at the moment and the questions that people have and the things that they'd uh, appreciate some port- some support around and it kind of came through that a lot of people dealing with uncertainty and unpredictability uh, from the the kind of fast changing pace of the world right now and all these different expectations and pressures that just seem to be very ceaseless in the way that they um, come flowing into and through our lives and so um, as I was reflecting on you know how I wanted the month of change in September so the theme of change in September um, the the kind of stuff that I was going to create for that I thought it'd be really great to have a courtyard conversation with Charlie Jones Um, who is the co-founder of Spaces for Listening, alongside Bridget Russell, who um, I spoke to on the podcast a a little while ago. And Charlie leads a clinical psychology team in uh, Southmead Hospital in Bristol, here in the UK. Um, And he's passionate about developing systemic and relational approaches to working in healthcare and creating sustainable conditions for safe and honest conversations with colleagues um, and patients. And I thought he'd be great to have this conversation with, you know, with that background in a very changing environment. You know, a hospital in itself is a a very uh, transient place. Uh, And yeah, Charlie's someone who regularly inspires me um, with his uh, tweets, his gentle reflections about relational approaches to leadership um, in communication and change. And he often tweets about leading, being led with humility, trust and integrity. Um, and his thoughts often carry this flavor of how would how do we connect with humanness in a world of systems and processes, uh, and how slowing down in the face of urgency can lead to better outcomes for everyone you know how do we create this space to listen to the needs beneath the noise um, and what is the uncomfortable thing that we might need to do now in service of uh, a positive long term vision in accordance with um, the the values that we want to bring to life. And so the aim of that conversation was really to explore our uh, human needs during times of change and how to create better conditions to to kind of meet those needs, both for ourselves and and other people around us. Um, Also ways unpredictability and uncertainty can get unnecessarily added to environments and seasons of uh, change and how communication underpins trust and trust undergirds our confidence in facing and responding to the changes um, that we face. So I was reflecting after the conversation, um, um, kind of going back through some of it and, and listening to, to what we talked about. <laughs> Sometimes, I, you know, when I'm in the midst of the conversation, uh, especially when I'm facilitating it, I can miss all sorts of things. Um, and there was a, a part where we talked about uh, the origin of the word trust. Um, and how it relates to truth. And we were kind of thinking about, you know, how, how does truth and trust, how do they, um, what role do they play when it comes to managing change and, and leading people in change, leading ourselves uh, through a period of change without, with a sense of confidence um, and, uh, yeah, with a, with a kind of sustainable energy. And I hadn't actually realized that tree and truth come from the same etymological root. Uh, from the word deru, uh, which means firm, solid, steadfast. I mean, it makes complete sense when you think about it. Uh, trees can endure and are even strengthened by their exposure to adverse conditions. Um, so, like trust, truth, these things are, they are, they're sort of unshakable um, kind of entities, but they are also flexible, adaptable, and dependable uh, in that. They can be blown over but they will come back into position. They are lasting landmarks, places of rest and homes for micro-universes of life in all its beautiful weirdness. A tree has roots to anchor it in place where it can absorb nutrients and water from the soil. The tree's trunk provides support, shape and structure delivering food between the leaves and the roots and the leaves turn sunlight water and carbon dioxide into the glucose that it needs to stay healthy and strong. Um, and so, yeah, I was kind of reflecting on, you know, I love a metaphor. <laughs> if you know me, you know how much I love a good metaphor and even a bad metaphor. Um, but yeah, I was, I was kind of yeah thinking that that makes complete sense that these words come from the same place. Um, and, yeah, like the, the fact that we often describe trust as something that we earn from people or something that is built. And again, while these images kind of make sense, um, they also carry a, a, a strange sense of transactionality. Um, and I think they can sometimes be unhelpful in that sense because they, they leave us with questions such as like, how can I make people trust me? How can I get people to, uh, to trust me? Uh, through this. Um, and I think this way of thinking can feel sometimes a little bit slippery (laughs) and disingenuous, um, because it becomes something that we're, yeah, we're thinking transactionally around. We're thinking, right, if I do this, then I can earn someone's trust and then I can get what I want. Um, and so in our conversation, we connected the dots between trust and truth, uh, considering how, uh, really trust is a natural byproduct of truth that kind of sense of truth that runs between the roots through our trunk and into the tips of our leaves and when we talk about it as you know my truth and your truth and um, it's this sense of I guess the integrity that sits in that steadfastness Um, you know what is it that gives us a firm solid steadfast grounding um, the perception of which other people can have confidence in you know, those things that give us that sense of dependability, that thing that people can rest in the um the, in our branches, so to speak. Like, you know, that thing that people are not coming in and being like, who is this gonna be today? Who like what am I getting when I hang out with Andy? Like you kind of know, you have a sense of that that truthfulness um in that. And that's something that you can have confidence in. Um and yeah depend on in a sense Uh, i think there's something in there that you know you're getting to what what that what that means as a truth Um, it's kind of other people's experience of us in many ways Um, more than the thing that we say is our truth you know we might declare oh this is my truth Um, but if that's not people's experience of it or if that's not the way that actually our actions reflect that thing if if that's not there then there there isn't that's not that, that isn't truth. Um, you know, and that I guess it's worth considering the opposite of trustworthy to get us a, a clearer picture of of what this kind of truth means. You know, I'm sure we've all encountered people who um can't be trusted, or that it's really difficult to uh to give our trust to. And what is it that makes that? It's often like a a bit of a shape-shifting. Uh, approach to life where there's a slipperiness they can wiggle their way out of things they can say one thing do another thing um, and kind of maybe deliberately do whatever they can to avoid accountability and responsibility they do whatever they can to deflect um, those things um, and so yeah the erosion of trust isn't even just about one person is it? it's not just about one relationship you know, trust when it's eroded um, because, one, because we experience an untrustworthy person, actually we can learn very quickly that we can't trust um, other people and places and systems. That's the kind of way that our body will respond, even when we encounter people that are trustworthy and do come from that real grounded, integrity-infused place of truth. Um, one person can erode our trust in everyone Um, and that can you know when we talk about that sort of sense of be the change that you want to see the fact that the world that we live in has been created by uh, the way that we um, go about life and so you know one untrustworthy person actually turns that into a broader truth than just the experience that you have with that one person so what does trust feel like where do we sense it in our bodies what does it feel like to trust a person to trust a process to trust a group how is trust grown and what tells us it's safe to put our confidence in that person in that thing in that place i'm going to go through some of the answers that came out in our conversation when we were exploring the characteristics of trust in relation to the process of change. And I want to stress that this is not a prescriptive list of things to do, um, but rather it's kind of uh, a set of reflections on some of those signs and signals that indicate the presence of trust um, as we defined trust and truth um, earlier, as that steadfastness that runs through from our roots to the tips of our leaves. And as we explore this stuff we're going to stumble on some of the things that might um potentially uproot trust and cause us to lose confidence in um in people in things and even in in the path that we are on um that we've chosen for ourselves. So uh, the first one uh, I think it all starts with this one which is integrity, you know, aligning words and actions. This is foundational to our perception of other people and to the story that we experience in the subconscious space of our nervous system. We scan for signs that we can or cannot trust someone based on whether their actions reflect their words. I was recently talking to somebody about uh, a, an experience they had with a coach where uh, they really had an erosion of trust in that situation because um, what they had espoused as the values underpinning the coaching partnership turned out to be undermined in the way that they actually went about the coaching process itself Um, and there's an underlying arrogance that says I've got your best interests at heart if you want to succeed then you've got to trust me and do exactly what I tell you to do and don't question it what do they think our best interests are how have they made that value judgment You know, does it reflect something that we have expressed as important to us? A set of values that we want to um, be uh, kind of held to. Are they helping us be accountable to our own authentic wishes? Or are they trying to do something else? Something that isn't actually coaching and isn't, um, you know, actually taking our best interests and also our desired intentions and the things that matter most to us and the things we want to um, explore and transform and telling us, you know, that doesn't matter. Just follow this thing that I've got here for this amount of money uh, and everything will be great. And if it's not, it's your fault. Right. Anyway, we constantly scan the world for information that tells us whether or not something or someone is safe integrity can play a part in that do they mean what they say if not why not you know sometimes these contradictions are just natural parts of life aren't they we all say things that we want to be true but then struggle to align our actions with those wishes and i don't think that's the point here i think the point is more about the way that we hold the words are we candid about those contradictions or do we tell people in a way that makes them believe we are doing one thing while we then do another Okay. Secondly, trust grows through respect. I had a lovely email from Giselle in reply to one of my notes from a slow coach a little while ago. Um, And we had an exchange about the etymology of certain words like true, truth, tree. um, And she shared how she'd been looking into the origin of the word respect and the idea that it simply means to look again. She says it suggests we can't have command over something we haven't seen clearly and that seeing clearly requires repeating the process over and over again. She says it reminds her of the lesson of taming the fox from the little prince. where It's got nothing to do with some authoritarian notion of just do what I say because I'm the boss, you know, that kind of power imbalance of uh, domination and control. You know, the prince doesn't understand what the word tame means and the fox explains it means to establish ties. It's this idea of connection, of seeing, of, you know, how to think of compassion, to actually do that respectful looking again to hear what is being um, expressed, what is needed within this other person. You know, to, to really, uh, to, to notice the need beneath the noise and the feelings that uh, kind of give an indication of what those needs are. Um, And I found this really interesting to consider. You know, to look again is to come back and see what is there. To respect someone is to seek, to see, to hear, to seek, to understand. Not just once, but continually revisiting a person. Coming afresh each time without assumptions and expectations that what was there before will still be true. I love the parallel with trust and leadership. You know, if all we see is the boss... It's difficult to hold genuine respect because we don't see the person beneath the label. The same if the boss says we should trust them because they are the boss. They're not respecting us. They're not respecting themselves. You know, how often does that happen? Self-respect is lost because we've become attached to the labels that shield us from truly seeing, accepting and growing the self that sits beneath those masks. Another idea that came out of our Courtyard Conversation was the link between trust and patience. You know, it's hard to grow trust when we feel like we're in the way or to grow trust with another person if we feel like they're in the way and we're trying to rush them through some kind of process. In our discussion, we talked about trusting those who lead through times of change. Are they patient with people? Do they recognise the time required for change to settle on the horizon and become integrated into the psyche of those they're leading? Or are they in a rush? Signs that they are rushing and impatiently forcing us to make the changes are smoothing over the rough edges, where in actual fact there is no change without some jagged elements. They might smooth over or dismiss concerns rather than holding space for them to be respected. Another sign of impatience might be sugarcoating. You know, it can seem like a gift to other people to put a gloss on things. Maybe it is helpful at times, and even if it doesn't explicitly erode trust, I'm not sure it ever truly builds it, because it carries a sense of superficiality to it. What do I mean by sugarcoating? It's a word I think we often use in relation to the truth, as a way of making a difficult truth somehow more palatable, telling someone something they won't want to hear, but doing it in a way that might elicit a slightly less reactive um, or emotional response, focusing on appeasement ahead of honesty. The question is who is the sugarcoating done for? The person delivering the news or the person receiving it? If the sugarcoating is done because I don't want you to hate me for saying it, we might end up with a more confusing and longer drawn out process. Sugarcoating and appeasement lead to misinformation, into taking the edge off making promises that can't be fulfilled just to make it feel better in the moment of delivery to offset the uh the kind of accountability and the responsibility of what might come to some point down the line you know our oh, future me can look after that i'm not sure if sugarcoating ever helps the person receiving it especially in the long run you know it's different from managing the way changes communicated in terms of a process of integration understanding that people need the right dots in a simple and understandable order so they can connect and make sense of things and sort of integrate in that way. You know, the best way to move into and through a season of change is often bit by bit, step by step, and it might take a bit longer than we want it to. But for trust to keep growing, time is usually a price worth paying. It might be tempting to rip off the plaster or smash down the dam and let the news come flowing freely but that may well leave the other person feeling completely unsafe and underwater. I know several people who are scared of swimming and scared of water because someone they trusted thought the best way to teach them how to swim was to push them in the deep end of a pool. Again, not only do those people make themselves very hard to trust in different areas going forward, they make everyone hard to trust. You know, those traumas are held in the nervous system, informing how we move through the world and who or what we allow ourselves to connect with. So in this sense, trust is not uh, an active choice, a conscious decision that we're making. It's a pattern of connection and protection. When we've learned that people can be trusted, that's the world we encounter. When we learn that people can't be trusted, that's the story our nervous system tells us whenever we experience uh, a sense of danger, whether that's around other people or in a particular environment or facing some kind of new situation. This takes us perfectly onto the next element of how trust grows, accountability. I was thinking about the interesting depths within this word after we spoke about it. You know, we account for things in a variety of ways, don't we? We use this word um, in several contexts, like when we account for an object, we essentially check to ensure that it's not missing. And if it is, we need to work out where it is and why it's not here. You know, its presence matters in this context so how does this relate to accountability in people um uh, the the phrase stand up and be counted comes to mind you know if we were here then we must be accounted for like for example if the fire alarm goes off and we're signed into the building it's going to be noticed if we're not there when everyone's gathering at the meeting place checked off as safe or unaccounted for as missing but the point is, I suppose, when we create, when we cause, when we catalyze things with the choices and the actions that we take, we also need to be present and responsible for what happens with those things, both now and maybe down the line. With strong and fair accountability structures, trust grows because we can be more confident that the other person will be making the best and most informed choice that they can in the present circumstances. But if we have no sense of accountability, there's really no need for due diligence and care. We have no common trunk around which trust uh, is growing and the shape-shifting responsibility avoiding games can take place. Accountability requires us to know what it is that we are accounting for, to have a common language, a core set of values and a common vision, something against which to balance the books. It's one of the reasons trust is is often really hard to come by in the modern world as it is right now because we're all working with different moral compasses and ethical barometers a lot of the time. There are huge areas where there is no sense of accountability for deceit and misinformation. And there are areas where attempts are made to bring accountability to situations, people and groups who weren't part of any agreement in the first place. Accountability requires a starting point of a shared agreement agreements give us a foundation on which to work this is something that is an important part of the coaching process to come back to that you know if we've agreed to work on a particular thing together and you've told me how important it is to make progress in a certain direction that's important to you we have an account to hold things to if i haven't taken the time to figure that gr- agreement out with you if i don't know what you want from this partnership I'm more likely to hold you to the standards of my own account, which doesn't belong to you and shouldn't belong to you. It's not yours, but it will leave you thinking, like, what's wrong with you, Andy? You're charging me for something I really don't care about. Um, And yeah, so I'm going to talk a little bit more about this idea of accountability in a future episode, because I think it's a really important thing to reflect on. And I've got a conversation I had with uh, someone called Rashid Hughes, um, and we spoke about accountability being something that really starts within and it really speaks this idea of, of truth, you know, personal truth and this idea of building trust around um, that, that integrity that sits within us uh, between our words and our actions and, um, and accountability be, being the way that we, um, I guess, encounter and hold the world, the things that are important to us. Um, do our words and actions align with that as well? It's a really fascinating area to explore um, and that will be yeah, coming in a, uh, an episode soon. Um, oh yeah, and the link between accountability and trust as well as being able to trust that we are working with the same accounts is seeing someone being accountable for their own actions. There is something trust nurturing about someone taking responsibility for mistakes and owning problems and changing their mind in light of new information. We have this weird view that sometimes sits in the shadows, which tells us that we need to show steadfast certainty rather than making mistakes. Be unwaveringly right about everything and to go back on something or to change your mind or to say, actually, you know, I'm not sure about this, is somehow a a sign of weakness. Which is ridiculous on many levels um, because, I mean, firstly, it's impossible, isn't it? Humans are fallible. We make mistakes. We don't and can't know everything But it also goes against the growth of trust. I don't trust you because you're right. I trust you because you're ready to admit when you don't know things and when you get stuff wrong. The account of trust is grown through those experiences far more than um, through the tally of things that you are right about. For example, a news source that is ready and willing to admit mistakes in an open and honest way grows trust more than a news source that never admits getting anything wrong. At a deep level, we know that mistakes will get made where humans are involved and we build connection when we can trust that mistakes will be owned and admitted and, and put right in some way. Okay, so what else grows trust? Uh, listening. <laughs> so I think this might go hand in hand with the point about patience, but it it also kind of deserves its own little section, um, especially as Charlie Jones being the founder of um, Spaces for Listening alongside Bridget Russell, who I spoke to um, for the podcast a while back. Um, there's a lot of talk about deep listening, empathic listening, authentic listening, all that kind of thing. And when it comes to growing trust, we don't need models or techniques for listening. In fact, it's sometimes helpful to strip that stuff away and really get to the, the kind of simple or the profoundly simple truth beneath it all to focus on the person beneath the surface. To see them, to hear them, at the core, the level of being as a human. Trust is nurtured when we feel heard. So how do we demonstrate to the other person that we are listening to them? Respecting them in the sense of coming back to see them for who they are and what is alive in them that speaks of present feelings and needs. In our conversation we spoke of the way this word is often abused by those who tell us they are listening. And they want that to be enough. I've been there. You know, I can think of a few experiences where hope was high because I was under the impression that listening was the priority of the other entity. But trust was eroded when it turned out actually this was just an exercise in perception management. If they believe they're being listened to, it might shut down the racket they're making. It might kind of appease them enough to make them stop asking these questions or whatever. But in the fullness of time, nothing changes. And what's worse, those techniques that were used by the professional listeners to make you feel listened to or to try and make you feel listened to suddenly feel manipulative. I gave my hope and my trust to this process. I believed you were listening to me, but you've ultimately ignored everything I said. And again, that infuses this sense that we see the world through, that we feel the world through, that we encounter those same things in the future. And we learn not to trust things that actually we might be able to trust. Listening only builds trust when you actually listen. Listening goes beyond this moment. It's part of an equation with change. Something is invited to shift. In many cases action must be taken in order to show, to provide evidence that you heard, that you care That you respect the person, not simply as a representative of a group that you can later say, well, you know, we sat down and listened to the concerns of such and such a community. The way to erode trust, hold a press conference to show it was a performative, not a transformative exercise. Um, Okay, trust is also grown through encouragement. So encouragement meaning to instill courage in a person by reinforcing the strengths of their character with evidence-based feedback. To be grateful and appreciative of who someone is rather than simply what they do. This could take us down the road of praise and rewards as a way to erode trust as well, which is probably something worth exploring because we might think that we build trust by rewarding positive actions and praising people for doing good stuff, whatever. There is a lot of research that points to the opposite of that being true. I'm not going to go into that here, but the, the book Punished by Rewards by Alfie Cohn is a, a good starting point if you're interested in um, having a look at that, um, that stuff. Encouragement is different from praise because it focuses on the truth of someone's character and it's completely subjective to the person sharing it. So it can't be rejected or argued with. We can recognize the difference because, you know, praise can often just be shrugged off or rejected by the person receiving it. You did a great job. How can we respond to that? Thanks. Cool. Glad you thought so. Or no, I didn't. I mean, that one's generic enough that we can say, even if we have no idea what job they did, you know, I've heard that from many bosses over the years. So no, you weren't there. You have no idea that I did a good job or not. Um, but we can get more specific. Okay. You did a great job with the presentation. You delivered it beautifully and we've already had 20 sales as a result of it. Well done. Um, you know, that might feel good to hear. It it does feel good to receive praise. But there's conditionality to it. And it kind of requires us to do something in order to receive it. So when it comes to trust, I feel my job is safe. I can trust in my boss's confidence if I can keep delivering better and better presentations. So praise ties us to praise as the reward. And according to research, can actually diminish our intrinsic motivation. It makes us more competitive and less collaborative and cooperative. If I do good work because I receive praise, then I'm really chasing the praise rather than the good work. I swap a deep inner motivation and sense of purpose for an extrinsically placed motivation. I want recognition, otherwise there's no point doing the thing in the first place. Encouragement is appreciation of being. Noticing what sits between the lines and beneath the doing. It's underpinned by a sense of belonging because of who we are, because that we are, before we're looking at what we've done. So it connects us with something deeper than the surface. It's kind of hard to give examples of encouragement. And I think that's because it's something that is so unprescriptive. It's some, something that is so authentic and, and of a moment and of a, an encounter that we have with people. But I guess fundamentally encouragement is something that is owned by the giver of it. You can't say, no, you don't, if I tell you something um, I appreciate about you. And you can't say, no, you weren't, if I say, I was really moved by noticing this thing about you. Um, You know, it's something that is just really felt, really subjectively experienced. um, And it doesn't have a sense of any ulterior motive. There's no sense of manipulation. It's something we can, um, we just, I guess, instinctively and intuitively are able to um, see as authentic and genuine versus something that's designed to manipulate. And the next thing that helps trust grow is bravery. Um, So Charlie wrote on Twitter, it was uh, I think the day before we had the Courtyard Conversation, uh, Charlie Jones wrote, met with someone today about a system change coming to our team. To be honest, my initial sense was to resist what felt like a threat. But to my surprise, I found myself trusting her. She listened and welcomed my concerns. I found her humble and sincere. I felt heard and it made such a difference. So this was another really interesting point that Charlie raised in the conversation, that trust is grown when really people um, have the, the bravery um, to say uncomfortable things and he shared this story of the training that he was part of and um, the the interactions that he had with that trainer were were not th- those sugarcoating um, things that we talked about earlier um, and he he announced at the start of the session that he was in a negative energy he was feeling distracted um, and again these are not necessarily textbook ways to nurture trust but they're because it's you can't follow a script it's it's about you know just allowing that 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 true honesty um, and transparency of like where you are at at the beginning of this session, for example. Um, but there is something about the courage to be honest about feelings like that, even if it seems jarring in the moment to the other person. It might be like, oh, okay, fair enough. Um, but it can foster a deeper sense of trust over time because it's like you didn't need to say that, um, and actually you saying that was was quite risky. <laughs> you didn't know how I would react to that. You didn't know how I would feel about that. Um, and at that deeper level, whether you are consciously aware of it as that person receiving those words, trust is grown because I I know actually I can trust this person to say uncomfortable things. Um, I guess this is something we see in stories all the time, a bit of a trope, isn't it, in film and TV where trust and res- respect grow from... Um, often, what looks on the surface to be a lack of respect and trust, because it's like edgy, and st- it feels like oh, someone's been a bit short with the other person, or they're not respecting them. Even they're not um, they're they're not just sort of uh, yeah, handing everything over to them because of uh, I don't know some reputation or their the symbolic role that they have in a in a society, or whatever someone who comes across as dismissive. But it turns out actually, there was a lot of safety and trust nurtured in the partnership through the process. Figuring out whether there is integrity in the other person. That's often part of what's going on there. Seeing what their priorities are under pressure. Um, And I'd like to add here that, you know, the safety of humour is a point of trust. Certainly true for me, where trust is grown and I'm aware of trust being grown when i can joke around with the other person and kind of engage in um a bit of banter with them without either of us taking it as an insult or you know feeling unsafe in in what might the other person might do as a result of hearing um or kind of encountering the way that we're um yeah given a bit of back and forth like it's a real sign of respect and a sign of um of trust and Affection, I think, a lot of the time. And it's a really difficult thing to articulate because it does look different in every relationship and it's not always done very well. (laughs) Uh, But I recognize that I trust someone when I feel safe to say something cheeky to them and vice versa. I get the sense that someone feels able to trust me. They feel safe around me when they can have a laugh with me um, at my expense. Um, And yeah, that, and that laugh is a, it's a specific type of laugh. Um, it's not superficial and it's not mean. It's, not, it's kind of born of a place that is really difficult to describe. And I don't think I've articulated that very well, but maybe you know what I mean. If you know what, what I mean, you might know what I mean. Um, and I think this takes us onto the next point quite perfectly, actually, which is vulnerability. Um, which Again, we might have covered this to some degree, but I think it's worth reiterating. Um, you know, when someone says, I don't know, I don't want to, or I need help, trust is grown. And solid boundaries help people trust us. When we know where someone's boundaries are, we're free in the confidence that we'll um, that they're, they're going to tell us if we overstep them. And that's a freeing place to be. It's like the opposite of that kind of proverbial walking on eggshells around someone where you're like, I don't know where the boundaries are here. I just know that anything could tip them over the edge. Um, And obviously, this is one side of the trust equation, the other side being the respect the other person has for the boundaries. But if someone doesn't respect them, there's a quick and simple filter. Okay, there's no trust in this relationship yet. That's helpful to know. This vulnerability factor is one of the biggest things for me when it comes to perceiving whether or not to trust someone. And it leads to the final point I want to make, which is safety to fail. You know, trust grows when I'm aware that even if this goes wrong, I will be fundamentally okay on the other side of it because this person won't leave me high and dry or there is something in this uh, environment or in this organization or whatever it is uh, that holds me that gives that sort of sense of safety from below. Someone who can admit they don't know, someone who acknowledges mistakes, asks you to stop doing something and is happy to ask for help. is someone who is more likely to be aware and flexible and open to learning. They're less likely to take high-risk actions in order to save face and they will take responsibilities for sorting out any issues on the other side rather than blaming, scapegoating and running away from accountability. When we can trust in other people to the point where it feels safe to make mistakes and fail, we're free to grow in more meaningful ways. So trust underpins everything when it comes to becoming more of who we are. Trust in others, trust that others can have in us. It's easily eroded, but it is grown Simply. It can be destroyed in an instant, but it can be nurtured over time. No rush, no panic, no urgency. One step at a time. Simple things, nothing pressured, just doing what is natural. And really that's what a lot of it boils down to. Getting beneath the stories that disconnect us. Now, I want to finish with another thing that Giselle mentioned in her email to me. She said, Your discussion of trust reminded me of a particular favourite moment in a video between the actors Josh O'Connor and Jesse Buckley on the National Theatre YouTube channel. Josh is talking about a serendipitous misunderstanding he had of a, a famous photograph by Eve Klein called Leap Into The Void. He mistakenly refers to it as the leap of faith, but as he says himself, whether he accurately remembers the details or not, does not detract from the story's overall insight. It's a black-and-white photo of a man leaping from a second-floor window, an artist attempting to capture the perfect shade of blue, which must belong to the sky. Since there is nothing and no-one underneath to catch his fall, the image is quite startling and visceral. However, apparently, Leap into the Void was not actually composed of a single individual jumping out of a white abyss of nothingness there was a hidden safety net of people prepared to catch him that was edited out of the final picture. In order to take the leap of faith, in order to have the courage and daring to push beyond the boundaries of one's comfort zone, there must be a network of support, whether that's people, finances, the environment, etc., beneath you. That's a fact we're reluctant to admit in our hyper-individualistic culture but it's at the core of existence. To connect back to your image of trust developing from the tree's core of truth, there are these invisible layers that build up over time between reality and expectation. The more expectation and reality are in tune and aligned with each other, the easier and more quickly the tree grows. Aside from revealing a tree's age, the rings also provide a barometer the type of climate the tree endured. Both the gifts the tree received and the pains it endured are all intricately recorded but hidden away from the naked eye. I love this story and reflection from Giselle. It's really a question of trust as well that came to mind when it comes to the perception that we have of what we see in art and you know encounter in the creative world of Eve Klein's photograph It's impossibility tells us of the necessity of collaboration. The reason it is so startling is because it is missing the very essence of what makes it possible. Other people. Those holding the tarpaulin below. Those he trusted to keep the secret and who did until uh, apparently 50 years later when the truth was, was kind of revealed officially but less like the deception of a lie than the secret of an illusion. There's something beautiful about confrontation with creative magic to witness the absurd, the strange, the beautiful, and to sit with the feeling it evokes and confronts us with rather than obsessing over the question of how this was done. And if we find out this was not done like in the way that it looks like it was done, there is somehow some deception that must be um, kind of called out and revealed. You know, there might be a time for learning such things, but it does nothing in service of the part we play in relation to the art. It's like magic itself, isn't it? Like, like an illusionist. You know, obviously they are concealing things from us. And that's the point. You know, this concealment is an invitation to see things differently. To shake up the way that we experience the world in a kind of default sense. And like any creative encounter, it brings us face to face with something, um, a question within ourselves, a confrontation with truth, with with what it is that we trust within ourselves as well. And so if we then default to this thing of like, I need to understand it, I need to know exactly how this was done and I need that big reveal. On the one hand, you, you end up kind of jeopardizing your experience of it because you uh, don't respect the... The artist, the illusionist, the magician, the person who has created this for a reason. To confront us with something within us, a different way of seeing. You know, creativity is all about that shift of perspective. Not to see things as, to confirm that things are as we always thought they were. But to open that possibility that comes with an internal question. And of course... There might come a time where we want to find out how that illusion was done. We want to find out, you know, how that artist works. But that's not the first port of call. And it's often a cause of disappointment, even if the illusion itself is an incredible feat of imagination and technical expertise. There's some, something often fundamentally disappointing about just knowing the answer to the mystery. Because it is that space where the mystery resides that keeps us going, keeps us fueled, keeps us connected. And there's something about art itself that speaks of trust to me too. A person who is able to hold abstraction and mystery and allow it to speak within them rather than being afraid of not understanding how this was done. I don't know. I, don't, I think I can't really trust that person with the transformative power of art. A person who cannot allow themselves to be moved to tears by something that resonates with their soul. Who puts the wall up in front of those tears. Says, no, I must understand this. I can't let it move me. For trust to grow, I need to know that you can feel what you feel before you bring reason and critical thought to the party. In other words, I can't trust the cynical, the utopian idealist who dehumanizes and diminishes who has taught themselves to reject the human spirit inside anyone except themselves and those who think alike. Trust is transcendental and fragile. It can both create the impossible and it can make the simplest things impossible. All right, so all I've got for you this week. Um, do get in touch with any reflections on this episode uh, via the contact form on the website andymort.com uh, through social media or in the comments on this episode page. All right. And until next time, remember that you are an artist. The world needs your art. Now go and make somebody's day. Bye bye.